Here's to you, pageant girl. You're a game changer. You're the underdog. You are the trendsetter. You're the one who speaks up for what you believe in. You build others up when so many others have beat them down. You don't back down in the face of adversity. And you have no respect for the haters. Some people love you. Others hate you. There are those who build you up and those who tear you down. Because the one thing they'll never do is define who you are. Because as a group, you are united as one. You hold each other up with strength. And while some may just see you as beauty queens, we see you as leaders. When the lights go out and the crown comes off, you'll always be proud to say, I am a pageant girl. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Weatherly Harris. I was Miss Universe in 1980, and I'm here with Tim Tialdo talk about life after the crown. Hey everybody, welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you useful interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, lifestyle entrepreneur, pageant host, author, and quite honestly, somebody who just wants to help you become a better person overall. Now, if pageant life is over for you, or it soon could be, and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? Or what's next? This podcast is designed to help make the transition to real life and the school of hard knocks a little bit easier for you to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us today. Let's get started. The first runner-up is Miss Arizona. Miss South Carolina is Miss USA. That is the legendary Bob Barker announcing Sean Weatherly as Miss USA 1980. She would go on to win Miss Universe later that year in Seoul, South Korea. And after her duties as Miss Universe were complete, she pursued an acting career and went on to star as Cadet Karen Adams in the film Police Academy 3 Back in Training and as Jill Riley in the first season of the TV series Baywatch. I think you've all heard of that one. She also starred in various TV series, including Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, Chicago Hope, 30-something, and Cold Case. She was also nominated for an Emmy for her work on the NBC series Ocean Quest. She's also published a series of articles chronicling her pageant journey entitled Tales from Beneath the Crown, Confessions of an Ex-Miss Universe. She is happily married to her husband, Chip, and has two kids, Jack and Jesse. Incredibly honored to welcome a royal member of the pageant world to the show today, Sean Weatherly-Harris. Great to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, what an exciting time. So for those of you listening, I I know Sean through the RPM Productions family because, uh, Sean, you were Paula Miles' very first winner as Miss South Carolina USA back in 1980. I'm sure little did she know that you would go on to win Miss Universe in her very first year of running the pageant. So do me a favor. Can you take everybody back in time to 1980 and talk about that whole experience? Because if I recall uh, from what you were telling me, you were a nursing student at that time at Clemson University. Yeah, I was in my finishing my third year. I got a call from Paula and they uh, needed, I think it was 26 or 27 pageant entries to, you know, have an official pageant. And I had already been through the Miss South Carolina that goes to the Miss America. 
and I had, had gotten first runner up. So I thought, well, that my pageant days are over. I really didn't know that much about the Miss USA, Miss Universe. So when she called, I said, oh, I don't think I can do that. I, I already tried that. It didn't work out. <laughs> and she said, no, no, this is a different one. And she told me a little bit about it. And I said, well, at that point, I was a nursing student and I was really strapped for cash. And I said, well, what do you win? And she goes, what's well, $100? I said, oh, that's good. <laughs> I was like, 100000 <laughs> In 1979, and I, I said, and, and oh, wow, what else? And she said, a free weekend at Myrtle Beach at a hotel. I said, oh, that's nice. And a piece of luggage, which is cool. And um, a lifetime membership to a local gym. Mm-hmm. So I said, why not? You know, so I just, I packed up my things and I went to Charleston and won. <laughs> I just said, wow, this is great, you know, and I went back to school and I didn't really think about the fine print. I didn't really know what it entailed that in a month it would be, you know, you, you, you're going to be in another pageant. And so when the whole thing came up, I found out I needed a, a really nice dress. I was, you know, wearing a dress that I've been wearing for years in different pageants. And so I, I heard about a guy named Stephen Yerick who had uh, has made some beautiful gowns for contestants and winners over the years. So he happened to be about 30 miles from Clemson. So I called him and I said, I really need a nice dress. And, um, I'm supposed to be in the Miss USA, but I don't have any money. Could do you have um, like a layaway plan? Remember the layaway plans where <laughs> oh, yeah. you um you didn't there was no credit cards. It no. was um you just they they held the thing that you wanted at the store and you you know walk in you gave them you know twenty dollars thirty dollars whatever you could give them until you pay the whole thing off and then you walked out with it and so that's what I was asking Stephen if he would offer you know and he said no I don't have a layaway plan for my gowns. But come in the store and we'll see what fits and maybe you can borrow one. And so the dress I wore was actually borrowed and it it was a former Miss World who had given up her title and it it just fit perfect and it was just I guess meant to be. And before I left, he said, Let me see if Joe has some time and he'll work in your on your hair. <laughs> I said, Okay. It could use some work. So I went from kind of listening like little little brownish, dull, ashy hair <laughs> mm-hmm. to um, blonde. I walked out with looking like Linda from Dallas. I had blonde bangs and oh, it was yeah. really, so I went back to my roommates at Clemson and we were all in, uh, well, my roommate was a, a nursing major like myself and Ann Steer and she goes, Sean, you're going to win. <laughs> Sean, you're going to win. <laughs> and I, I just laughed and we laughed. We had a good chuckle and we didn't think anything about it. It was just fun to, you know, try on this gown and, and have this cool hairdo. It was just, it was just kind of a kick and it kind of caught me off guard, which I guess is better for me because I tend to be a worrier. If I have too much time to think about something, I, I'll, I'll worry myself right out, out of a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I, it kind of all hit me pretty quickly. And so you go on to win Miss USA. You, you had to not be expecting that considering, you know, you kind of entered the pageant based upon the things that Paula told you you could win for it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, because I, I like I say, the, the pageant that was on my radar was the ones that lead up to the Miss America, the state pageants that, that you do that. And I had worked we're in a couple of years doing those kinds of things, prepping for it. And we had had a, um, in our uh, hometown of Sumter, we had um, a man named Billy Harris. Uh, ironically, that's my married name. It's yeah. so funny. But Billy and Margaret had a funeral home and they also had a florist and they had, uh, they ran the local Miss Sumter pageant that's the, the preliminary to the go to the Miss South Carolina. So if you won the Miss Sumter, you would go to the Miss South Carolina that then goes to the Miss America. So you know, he, he really helped prepare us. He Even though it was kind of odd, we were in the funeral home learning how to walk in our bathing suits and high heels. <laughs> quite strange. But 
I bet. I have uh, one of my stories is about that very thing. It's like you can't make that stuff up. So he also would have the, the local teachers, the high school teachers, come in and give us mock interviews. So you know, giving us an, a chance to you know try out our answers to different questions and sort of teaching us how to think on our feet. So those kinds of things that Billy did for me were they were really lifesavers because by the time I had done all these festivals and pageants, and by the time Paula asked me and I thought everything was you know I was done with pageants. I'd had all that, you know, experience and it was um, sort of just kind of living in me and I didn't really have to think too much about it. So you go to Biloxi, Mississippi, you win Miss USA and now, you know, you've got Miss Universe in front of you and you probably, it sounds like you probably really had no idea what Miss Universe was going to entail. How did you kind of prepare for that? At first I thought, wow, this is great. I don't have to take my exams for my junior year. (laughs) I can hold off until next year (laughs) because I hadn't had that. It was nursing and I, I was just struggling for my B's. Any B I could get, I was so thankful for. And all the labs and things were, I wasn't being able to get into labs as as I had needed to for exams. So I thought, you know, I'll tell my my professors and maybe they'll let me postpone it until after. And none of them would let me do it. And they said, well, I don't think you're coming back. So no, you got to do it now. Because what if you don't come back and then you don't get credit for your junior year? And I said, oh no, please, I'm coming back. I'm not going to win. Let me, let me. No, no, no. So they made me take the exams, which I I really to this day don't even know how well I did. I, I kind of just never wanted to look back. So, um, uh, you know, I took the exams. They moved me to New York City, actually, that when I was Miss USA. I traveled for a month uh, as Miss USA and, and lived in New York City. And then by the time Miss Universe came up, you know, I had a little experience traveling. I had, they had given me quite a bit of help with wardrobe and hair and my hair had gotten too blonde, so it was a little bit too bleached out. So uh, they said, let's tone that down. You know, let's get rid of the bangs. You don't need to look like Linda from Dallas anymore. You, you got to represent, you know, <laughs> Miss USA and the Miss Universes. So they did all that for me. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to go ask for a dress on loan or ask for, you know, a payment plan. And um, so I had a lot. I had a lot of support that way. So explain to me the difference between Miss Universe back then and today. I mean, you know, obviously Miss Universe is a pretty big deal today, but I know back then Miss America at the time, I think, was really the more prominent pageant system that existed. You know, when, mm-hmm. you, when you were going into that, what what did you think Miss Universe was going to mean if you even did win it? You know, I just thought it's kind of like the gals who don't have talent <laughs> <laughs> going to the Miss Universe. I mean, let's be honest. Because as a Miss America, can, you know, somebody who's trying to win the Miss America, all you're thinking about is having the best talent mm-hmm. and working that thing as hard as you can and just being perfection. And then when I heard this, this pageant didn't have any talent, I thought, well, what's the point? You know, um, well, we have gown, we have swimsuit and interview. I'm like, yeah, that's the easy stuff. <laughs> the other thing, you don't have to do the other thing. So at first I thought it was sort of a cop out, but it was fine with me because it was just, you know, it was still an opportunity. I didn't really care, but I thought of it as being a whole lot easier. But then when I got to the pageant, I met all the girls and I I learned about all the stories from all the different countries. I felt myself feeling really grateful to be, it was much more a real world experience versus hammering down one piece of music or one dance. You you kind of realized you were you were in a bigger arena and it didn't matter so much the talent. It mattered a little bit more about like sort of resiliency, the different backgrounds each one had. Like Miss Universe had the Miss Israel and 
she was gorgeous. And I said, so, um, what are you doing? You know, when, what do you do when you go back? She said she was serving nine months in the military, you know, different women with different backgrounds. Some women, this was their big opportunity just to give to their family, some kind of way of life, you know, way of life. Mm-hmm. And some people were, were just doing it to help their family. It, it, it just was a, a much bigger experience and, um, more, bigger than, one one person more about you know sort of the experience of all these country, women coming from different countries. So I sort of I got very humbled actually. I, I thought it was a humbling experience and didn't know what in the world I was doing there. I did not feel um, ex- they were so exotic. Many of them were just so like beautiful beautiful beauty I'd never seen before. You know this is before the internet, before social media, before posting. You know every perfect <laughs> person was. So I'm staring at Tilda Flair. I think she was from French Polynesian. I can't remember the exact name of the country, but there were about 79 countries represented. Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed every single person I met. I I got to be good friends with Miss Sweden, who I'm still friends with. And uh, those kinds of lifetime experiences with people. So it's one thing to, you know, when you win Miss USA, you've obviously beat out the other 50 states, but it's got to be another to beat out the entire world. You know, when you're standing there and as you mentioned, you've got 79 countries around you. What is the feeling mm-hmm. like when you are announced as Miss Universe? Oh, my God. Is I, oh, my God. I think I remember I said that a million <laughs> times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I was shocked. Absolutely shocked. I just I didn't really feel my feet I was sort of in. <laughs> It's like, the, did you ever see that movie Talladega Night? Oh yeah, you know with um, Will Ferrell, and he's doing um he's doing a commercial, and he does he feels really awkward doing the commercial, and his hands keep coming up. And he's saying, "I don't know what to do with my hands." <laughs> that was you, huh? <laughs> that was me. I don't know. I don't know what to do with my body. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm numb. I had no. It was total shock. And then once it once it set in, I I was just so grateful. I just could not even believe it. So looking back, why do you think you won? Uh, it was a miracle. It was a gift from God. I, think. <laughs> I mean, just those kinds of things you can't you can't ever really prepare for, or can you really know what it takes to do it? You just do the best you can. And you know, thinking about all the times that I had been in festivals, and I mean, I was in the Miss Grape Festival, I was in the Miss Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Festival, I was in the Miss Fidea Onion Festival. These were all these weekend festivals that I did building up to going into the Miss South Carolina that goes to the Miss America. So I never miss an opportunity to enter one of those a lot because I really like doing it. I really liked being with the girls. I liked kind of learning how to be a woman. I had lost my mother when I was eight and she died of bone cancer. And I really kind of craved learning how to be a woman. And that was my way of sort of figuring it out. So it was it was a great study for me, a study of how to grow up and how to carry yourself. And certainly not because I felt like I knew how to, it was more about I was trying to learn how to. And it gave me an, you know, a, a way of doing it. So all that stuff, I think that I, I even won the Miss Tobacco Festival. And I remember standing on bales of hay and, and the guys who did the, <laughs> the guys who do the auctioneers. The, the, the auctioneers, you know, and then they're auctioning, they're, they're, they're calling out our names and stuff. And to me, that just seemed perfectly normal walking around your bathing suit with a bunch of auctioneers in a tobacco barn. It, nothing fazed me. I, it, you know, walking in the, in the, um, 
funeral par- parlor, you know, in my bathing suit and kind of learning how to just be, you know, comfortable no matter where I was. Yeah. So as you look back on, you know, the, the pageant portion of your life, if you will, you know, what is the biggest thing that you think you took away from that you, that you continue to use the, to this day in your life? It's kind of just what I do in life as a, as, as a rule is, is try to take the focus off of yourself and focus on others, and that kind of takes the nerves out. Um, it's the same in acting, too. I learned from a really great acting coach. And I did it naturally, I think, but I didn't didn't realize that I, I kind of been trained to do it. Billy had helped me, a lot of you know, Paula with everything that she helped us with. She, she talked about taking the focus off yourself and putting it on the other, giving your attention to the other person, mm-hmm. um, being truly interested in what they are saying, what they have to say. And you automatically are relaxed and you automatically have uh, a connection with people because everybody wants to be seen and understood. Um, I guess most people believe that people that are in pageants are just trying to show off. Mm-hmm. But I would, ha- I would have to disagree with that because if you're really good at it, if you really learn you know, how to... to do your best in it, you're going to have to learn how to to be um, listening to others, how to be um, empathic, how to be really interested in what the other person says. And I've been a judge in, in a few pageants before. And the one thing I noticed that was really hard was girls who were very self-conscious, who, you know, would look down at their shoes, who, you know, couldn't stop fiddling with their hair or their nails and stuff. It wasn't because they were self-conscious that you couldn't get to know them. It was because they were working so hard to be okay in the seat that you never could really see them. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the girls that didn't really concentrate on how they looked or how their shirt was tucked in or whatever, and that just sat there and listened to me and looked in my eyes and, you know, just tried to connect with me. Those are the people that I remembered. And um, it, it didn't even have much to do with how they answered the question, because the questions really people say, oh, it's the right, right answer, blah, blah, blah. There's really no right answer. The answer is just being absolutely present with the person you're with. And when you're present with them, you might giggle, you might laugh, you might kind of get a little embarrassed and go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. But it's okay as long as you're as you're really engaging with the person you're connecting with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Now you mentioned that you've you've judged a few times. Do you still pay attention to the pageants today? Do you watch the, the big ones on television? No, I don't. But I've seen, you know, I'll sometimes see a blip here and there. And the first thing I saw that was recently was that they were wearing bikinis. And I was so thankful I didn't have to do that, that we were still wearing one pieces. We were wearing one pieces. And I remember I had the dress that was, that I borrowed from Stephen Yurick, this beautiful flesh tone dress, wasn't see-through or anything. The beautiful beagle beads were um, sewn all around it. And it was high neck, long sleeves, but it had a slit up the front of my left leg and went up about, I don't know, six, seven inches above my knee. Mm-hmm. And so in modern times, you know, in, in, you know, comparison to now was certainly not risque, but I remember getting a couple of letters that were like hate mails from me, from me wearing that dress. I had a slit, a slit above my knee. Well, I don't know. It's like, I thought that was really kind of tame given what girls are asked to do now. And I also noticed that, that man, the dresses are extraordinary. They went from when I was in the Miss Universe, there were girls that were wearing dresses that looked like somebody's made on her dress. They they were not these expensive, you know, beautiful couture dresses that they wear now. So it was, in fact, the Miss Sweden, she was fourth runner up and her name was Eva. And she had this really bad yellow promy looking dress with poofy sleeves. And 
didn't do her justice. And I said, Eva, you cannot wear that dress. You got, I have a white dress. It's really pretty. Try it on. See if it fits. You've got to wear this dress. And she goes, oh, thank you, Sean. Are you sure? I don't need to wear it, you know, in this beautiful Swedish accent. And I said, you really can't wear that yellow thing. That's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> and so she wore the white one. <laughs> it looked gorgeous on her. And she, she came in fourth runner up. You know, that's, it was so much more, it wasn't as, as professional as it is now. Yeah. Sort of the way the Miss Americas were so professional for so long, people just, I mean, if you didn't win your state, some girls would move to another state. Oh, yeah, still do. Yeah, yeah, and so that was intense. Well, you mentioned earlier that you uh, you had to move to New York uh, when you became Miss USA. You lived there for a while, and I actually, uh, I was doing a little research and saw a picture of you and President Reagan, so you got to spend some time with him. What was that like? Oh, he was, he was wonderful. Um, he had just gotten out of the hospital from being shot in an attempt on his life, and we had heard we wanted to bring him a gift or something, and so the Miss Universe company and I were kind of tra- trying to think of what to take him, and I'd heard he likes jelly beans, and I love candy, so I brought him a big jar of jelly beans, so I handed him that. He was gracious. It was quick and, and fast, but really such an honor that, he, that after having gone what he'd been through, he, he would think that this was an important enough thing to, to do, you know? I mean, he has a lot on his plate, and, and yet to take the time out to meet with us and take pictures with us and... Um, just allow us to come into the Oval Office was was really an honor. Well, so after your Miss Universe reign comes to an end, you decide to pursue a career in acting. But, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you were previously studying nursing at Clemson. So what prompted you to make the shift after Miss Universe? Um, I really didn't want to work in hospitals. I, I my, my roommate, Anne, was, she was born to be a nurse. She had a Halloween costume that was like Florence Nightingale. So she <laughs> was born to be a nurse. I, I knew that wasn't me. I didn't really want to work in hospitals. So I just took what came my way. I got a lot of interviews with different people. I got an interview with the president of NBC Sports at the time. I think his name was Don Allmeyer. And a friend of mine got me an interview and I was like, oh, great. And and I really didn't think too much about it, but I had a boyfriend who was an athlete. And I thought, you know, maybe I could go into sports casting or something. And that would be kind of fun. And so when I went to meet Don Allmeyer, he said, well, how are you doing? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a sportscaster like uh, Phyllis George. And he said, ah, that, that'll never happen again. Women aren't going to be very, you know, they're not going to have women in sportscasting. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, you know, he really discouraged me. He didn't believe it was going to be a thing, which is fine because it wasn't really something that was on my radar to begin with. But I just thought I had this opportunity. I mean, I could say, hey, give me a chance if if you want to. So I didn't get the, you know, I didn't get an opportunity to sort of be on camera and try my hand at that. He did introduce me to William Morris' agent that got me a couple of interviews with Dick Clark, who was doing uh, some variety shows and uh, worked with Lynn Swan on one of the variety shows, Shaping Up America or something, Inside America. And I did the sports section. Okay. So I got some... I got some work doing that, but it didn't, it wasn't my thing. I didn't, it wasn't as interesting as I, I got a a couple of auditions for acting jobs and I never had an acting uh, lesson in my life, but I loved it. It was so much fun. So I kind of thought, wow, if I could do this for a living, this would be a blast. So I just sort of took the interviews as they came. Didn't really know how to audition. Um, I think in the first year or two after winning, you're given a lot of grace. Sure. (laughs) They, people people want to meet you and they, they want to um, just kind of see what you're about. And 
So I think the best thing you can do is really take every opportunity that comes your way and meet with people. I would suggest, however, if you really want to do something and really want to be a sports commentator and you get that opportunity to meet with somebody, be prepared, have a video, be, have some, you know, and start working on those things that you really want to have happen. So you have something, you know, in your pocket that you, know, you have, you have some skill that you can offer. I mean, I had skill at being in pageants, but and I just didn't really have any skill in it. any of the other areas I got an opportunity to work at. Um, I was lucky enough, a lot of people gave me some small acting jobs. And then I got a manager who said, you better take an acting class. You can't act your way out of a paper bag. And I said, okay, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> so I took some acting classes, but I got better at it. But ironically, when you want something so badly, and this is what I learned about being in pageants too, sometimes wanting something so badly can really mess up being good at it. The desire to win or the desire to get the part, if that's your main desire, it's pretty likely that it ain't going to happen. The best way I think to approach things is to find the fun in it. Find the thing that you enjoy and don't look for the outcome because even in acting, let's say I remember getting a job and, and uh, I happened to do a great audition, which was really rare. <laughs> and I, they call, they called me back in and they loved the audition and I screw it up the second time. And I'd ask my coach, why can't I go in there and do this? He said, because you're trying to do the same thing you did. But when you first went in there to get the job, what was it you were doing? Oh, I just remember thinking it was such a fun part because I could go in there and I could pretend this person was this gal I hated in high school and I could really give it to her. So he said, see, remember what you were doing that when you went in, you were going in there to get something done, not to get something. You weren't going in there to get the job. You were going in there to go and tell that high school girlfriend that gave you a hard time, just who was on top this time. So it was a great lesson to remember you know, athletes have the same thing. Sometimes you have a great, you know, run at the baseball field. Mike Trout's having a very cold time right now. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the best of the best go into that slump. And sports psychologists, you know, any kind of psychologist will say, it, you're getting in your head and you're trying to get the result instead of doing the thing because originally the reason you were doing, I love to play baseball. I love to hit the ball. I love to go in there and pretend you know, that I'm speaking to somebody that, that I have something to say to. That's super interesting. And, I, you know, obviously, whatever advice your coach gave you must have taken root because you went on to, you, you as we mentioned, you were on some pretty popular shows and movies, uh, Baywatch, Police Academy. So at, at what point of your early career there did you feel like, you know, I'm kind of a bona fide Hollywood actress? I never really did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you do. I don't think you ever really do. Um, you're always trying to get better than you were before. You're, it's kind of like golf. You're, you're competing with yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's just always, you know, oh boy, a bad putt, a bad day. It, you know, uh, some days you're, you're like great in an audition. Some days you're terrible. The actual work itself became easier because I had a skill. I had uh, um, a technique. The auditions, however, never got easy, and that's always hard if you're trying to get better and better work. Is that you know that opportunities? It's, it's hard. Those, those you get a couple minutes to make a big impression, and it's hard to stay focused. It's easier when you're actually working on the set. Well, you know, I have to dive into the Baywatch experience because obviously they they just re-released that movie last summer, and you know, in in many ways that show 
changed the culture of television back in the 1990s. So how did you land that gig? Well, there again, <laughs> it's not a Hollywood story. The reality is, is um, like I said, I was just terrible at auditioning. I, I get so nervous. In that particular audition, you know, I looked at the, the script and it was running around the bathing suit. And I had just finished Ocean Quest, which was five one-hour shows. It was a docudrama I had done. And I was in a bathing suit for 18 months and I was pretty much done with getting in the water and uh, I was just tired. But when this job came up, it was, I went in the audition, didn't do too well. They forgot about me and I didn't get the job originally. And about a month later, I got a call from the producers and they said, um, can you come in? And I said, I already auditioned for that. He just, he said, I wasn't right for the part. And I said, no, we need, we, we hired an actress, but she can't swim. <laughs> so, so I said, I can swim. I can't act, but I can swim. So I went in and I thought, well, before I go there, you know, they're going to make me put my bathing suit on. So I'll just wear my bathing suit on underneath my clothes. And that way we'll just get right to the point. Cause you know, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. They don't really care about how I act. They just want to see me in my bathing suit. So I go in there, I do the audition. And they, they said, would you mind, um, you know, putting on your bathing suit. So, you know, got to, the per, you have, the character has to work tomorrow. So I t- took my clothes off right there in the audition. And then, you know, later I thought, God, do they think it looked like a striptease or something? That was, <laughs> I mean, God, I was just weird. It was, I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, I took my clothes off and I sat, I stood there with my hands on my hips and then said, Oh, okay, great. Thank you. So I ran out going, Oh my God, what did I just do? I got in my car and I just didn't know whether to laugh or cry and uh, outran the um, wardrobe supervisor and she said, what size are you? And I said, why? She goes, I think you got the job and I need your size so I can get your bathing suit ready. I went, oh my God, oh my God. So they called and I worked the next day. So the year was was a great year. It was, it was, as jobs go, a dream job. I shouldn't have been so miserable doing it. I just, I think the year of Ocean Quest had given me a little PTSD mm-hmm. <laughs> about being in the ocean. I had um, swam with sharks. I'd been in the Antarctic. Um, I'd done a lot of extreme scuba diving. I think a lot of it was just sort of, oh, I'm done with this, done with this. But so I asked to leave after the, after the first year and they said, well, do you mind how we get rid of your character? And I said, no. So then I found out they were going to get, um, you know, get rid of my character by having her get bitten by a white shark. And uh, they, ap- they happened to use the footage from Ocean Quest that we filmed when we were in the Great Barrier Reef with a white shark. Oh, and no so they intercut, they intercut me with the footage that we act- actually took of the white shark. So I thought that was pretty apropos. That is pretty cool. So, you know, looking back on it now, everybody thinks Baywatch is this iconic show. But, you know, at that time, you obviously didn't know what it was going to be. Did you think it was going to be a big deal or you thought it was just going to be just another show? I was getting pretty disappointed with the scripts. You know, they had told me, you know, this is going to be like 30 something at the beach. You know, I thought it was going to be more story oriented. That was my wanting desperately to be thought of as serious I just thought it wasn't going to be very good for being thought of as a serious actress so and I also had just gotten married and I thought gee if I get pregnant and I'm running around this red bathing suit I think they'll just write me in as a whale instead so I, I you know so I had a lot of worries in my head like I said I told you if I have too much time I'll worry about everything so I started worrying about all those things that could come true so I, I decided I better just like ask them to get rid of me. So, and then, they, and then they, the show ended up uh, getting canceled by NBC. Mm-hmm. David took it um, to some European investors who um, 
he knew from his music career that he had going pretty well in Germany and parts of Europe. And that's where he got funding to uh, take it to cable. And they, they uh, lowered the salaries of everybody. We, we had some pretty big salaries at NBC. And then when they started it back up, the salaries came down you know, quite a bit and the production value came down a bit. But that was the way they could get it started back up. So in the long run, um, you know, they, I think they ran another 10 years or more. And when you run a series for, I think it's still the same, over seven years, it's the residuals. And it's, it's a great um, way of getting a continued income for actors. But I, I wasn't. I wasn't in the, the next 10 years. My gut tells me I prob- they probably wouldn't want it, would ha- wouldn't have kept me on. You know, they, they, they changed the, the characters a lot, um, and not too many people stayed on for more than just a couple years. What was it like to work with Hasselhoff? Was he a good guy? Very nice. He was really nice. I remember as a, as a nursing student at Clemson, used to go by the jock dorm, and they all had their TVs on to some soap opera, and I think it was The Young and the Restless or something. Whatever one he was on, I can't remember... And he played that character Snapper. And so I remember seeing that soap opera. And when I saw him and started working with him, all I could think of was Knight Rider and Snapper. And I just, it was very hard to keep a straight face. <laughs> I had a hard time thinking, oh my God, I remember watching you on this soap opera. And then just, I never said that to him, but it was pretty surreal. Well, the role that you mentioned earlier, the before Baywatch, the Ocean Quest, uh, that's the one that you were nominated for the Emmy for. Um, it sounds mm-hmm. like it was a, a five-part series. Talk about... Um, kind of how that came about and what, what you were doing with that. Well, I just finished a, a TV series um, that got canceled called Shaping Up, and it was with Tim Robbins and Leslie Nielsen. And the guys who wrote Taxi uh, were the writers. Uh, it got canceled, though, and didn't have a job. So my manager said, uh, do you want – there's this, this documentary, and you they want to see if you can swim, and, and they you don't have to scuba dive. They want to get an actress who's never scuba, di- scuba dived before, but – you go around the world and it's five one one hour shows for NBC, but they'll have a stunt double and you won't be diving deeper than sixty feet, you know, and you'll only work five days a week. I mean, it'll be on SAG. SAG is, you know, it, it's a union. They protect your your hours and things like that. So you would never work as many hours. So I I thought it was more like a, a an acting job. So they flew me up to the uh, Bay Area where Al Giddings studio and um, was and met him and I did the scuba test in his pool. He was the underwater photographer for the show. And he also has done Titanic and the deep and a bunch of national geographic specials and things. So he, he was a big producer for underwater uh, film, met him and, and went through the whole thing. And I got the job, but when I got the job, I, I, you know, started traveling and, and, uh, realized this was not a SAG. They were not, I was not listed as a, as, a, as an actor. I was as a, basically as a stunt person I mean not stunt person it wasn't even a union it was I was just listed as a regular you know worker so I the the compensation I got was really bad and I didn't get residuals and um, I worked seven days a week and I went I definitely went lower than 60 feet there was no stunt doubles I did 200 feet one time I we went scuba diving under 10 feet of ice in the Antarctic um, wow. no, this was not, this was not, this was not a union job. No, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> I mean, I, looking back on it, it's like getting on a bad horse and telling everybody you did it. Um, and I'm glad I did it. But at the time it was really hard. I, I was a month in McMurdo station in the Antarctic, um, gone for 18 months. My dad passed during the time I was traveling. It was, a, you know, he was a 
he had an aneurysm, so he he wasn't ill. He it just happened one day and um, flew back for his funeral. Then they said, "Listen, if you don't want to finish anymore, we understand." I said, "No, no, I, I want to get back to work. I'm not going to do myself any favors if I sit around and and you know I'm sad about it. There's nothing I can do." So um, went back to work and um, finished it. And then uh, the, the series turned out really, really well. We did all the footage live. Uh, they filmed it live. They didn't edit, you know, any drama into it until the very end. The producers said, you know, we need to edit a few things out for liability because there was there was an incident or two that were a little scary, and they didn't want to have that on TV because it looked like, you know negligence or something. One of the incidents was, I mean, I never would have said anything or done anything. I was fine. Not a person who sues anybody, but so it was an incident. We were in Australia and we had been chumming for white sharks to get them to come for like six days. We finally get them there and the skipper of the boat has this big cage that it's a, it's a cage you go into and it has these buoys on the side and it sits about 10 feet below the surface of the ocean once you get in and then we sit in there and we film the white sharks as they come towards the cage so uh, the, the sharks are there and they get us in the cage but i look up at the the cord that is you know supposed to get us up and over the side of the boat and in the water it's like a it's a rope it's not even metal and I, I said to the skipper i said you know al is about 200 pounds i'm a little over 100 pounds we got about 300 pounds of, of equipment here i don't think that thing's going to hold us and he's, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. We'll get, we'll get you over there. Don't worry. <laughs> it's Australian guy. We, get the, we had our, um, our mask on our head. We had no regulators in our mouth. It was behind our back because we were taking pictures for TV Guide before we went in. And the, and the, the cage door was open because we had our, you know, we're standing in the middle of the cage door for the picture. And the rope breaks and it goes down. And for about what felt like, you know, 30 minutes was probably three seconds, but we were in the water and there, I couldn't see anything. I had no, no goggles on. It was just bubbles everywhere. Cause we, when we came in, it was just it dissipated all the water and there was blood everywhere. And I could not see anything. I, I didn't have a regulator and I knew there were sharks out there because we, we've been chumming up for them for six days. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty scary. They pulled the, um, the cage to the side of the boat to um, close the entrance of it so the shark couldn't get their head in. And then Al found my regulator and put it in my mouth. And then we came to the surface and they filmed it, but we had, had to reenact it because the real thing, they didn't want, they didn't want to show it. Well, it sounds like it was probably it was a little terrifying. So frightening. And it was, it showed that, you know, they should have had a cable that was going to hold us, not, mm-hmm. you know, it, it showed a fault to them. So we reenacted it, and obviously it was not nearly as a- well acted as when I did it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a really, act. that's a super interesting story, though. No, it, it's a funny thing, because my kids know me as Nervous Nellie, like, Mom, it's so scared, she's such a scaredy cat, and you know, she just never does any anything. She's not adventurous. But before I had kids, I was. I was pretty much a daredevil. But they, you know, once you become a mom, you're just, you know, you're you put bumpers on everybody and you're scared to death. I would like to put my kids in like a hamster bubble. That would make me feel <laughs> sleep very very good at night. But I was I wasn't always that that frightened. I was I was pretty pretty ballsy when I was younger. So now that you you know you have spent a good amount of your career in Hollywood, you you acted, you did movies and TV shows and a, a docudrama. 
for those girls out there today who are, you know, dead set on, I want to move to L.A., I want to be in Hollywood, I want to be an actress, do you have some advice for them on, you know, how to go through the process if they choose to do so? You know, I, I know this doesn't sound like what you want to hear, but there, like, I had a very dear friend of mine who was a very successful actress, and she she went to Juilliard because she always knew she wanted to be an actress. If you really know that's what you want to be, get trained uh, before you go, I think. Um, but if you're in pageants and you win and then you get opportunities to meet people, then it's a different story. It, it just depends on what, what life brings you, I think. Um, I always say, and I tell my kids the same thing, never say no. Um, if, if somebody wants to meet you and you go, oh, my God, I don't know how to be a sports commentator or I don't know how to do this. It doesn't matter. Go and meet them. You know, uh, get to. This is the other thing I would say is now that you have Google and Wikipedia and everything, before you go and meet anybody, make sure you know enough about them that you can ask them questions too. So you can be that person that you know they see. You know, has has an ability to you know look outside of themselves and ha- have an interest in other people. Because when I met Don Allmeyer, um, just having the meeting and him saying, you know, I don't think sports commentating is going to be a thing for women, really. Phyllis uh, George, that's kind of an anomaly. It's not going to happen again. He, it, uh, meeting him helped me get an interview and, a, and an agent. He got, got me an agent with William Morris, and that agent got me uh, auditions for the Dick Clark shows, and those things got me auditions for acting jobs. So just to just to not worry about you know thinking too linearly when when opportunity come, comes your way just be prepared when they do and and go for it and and take every interview you get i the, the year right after uh, miss universe when i didn't know what i wanted to do i got an opportunity to work for a shipping line it was you know just a personal appearance contract where i worked 3 or 4 days a month for this shipping line mid africa and all they wanted me to do was show up at their big events. And um, it was a great paying job. And it and afforded me the money I needed to travel to, uh, to L.A. to take some classes, to, you know, fly back and forth to auditions. So, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, exactly what you think um, you should be doing. But if, if there's opportunity, just, you know, take it one day at a time. Do you ever look back? Uh, to 1980 and think, you know, what if I didn't take Paula's invitation to be uh, in Miss South Carolina, USA? What do you, where do you think you'd be at today? Oh my God. I think I'd still be trying to pass my classes in nursing school. (laughs) (laughs) It was so hard. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's why I say it was a miracle. I was really struggling for, you know, finding what it is that I would love doing. Um, I mean, I love helping people, but I did not want to be in a hospital, really, I spent a lot of time in the hospitals with my mom when I was a little kid, and it was—I just couldn't imagine, you know, being in the hospital um, and made, meeting my roommate Ann Steer. Just solidified the fact that I was not meant to be a nurse. So, <laughs> I was—I was in nursing school, but I'm not sure I was. My head was really in it. I was kind of daydreaming a lot. So now that you've had, you know, a successful career, obviously a very successful pageant career, I'm sure that you you have some wisdom that maybe you teach to your kids, maybe you teach to other people. You know, what is it that you've pulled away from all of this, you know, as a kind of a final thought? Well, I keep that first runner up um, certificate that I won a, a scholarship for uh, when I went into the Miss South Carolina that goes in Miss America. I keep that reminding myself and I tell my kids, you know, Sometimes 
not getting something is a stepping stone to something greater. In other words, if I'd won that Miss South Carolina at the time, I don't know what the policy is now, but apparently if you were in a, you won a state that went to the Miss America, you could not at that time be um, allowed to be in a state pageant that went to the Miss USA. That's correct. Yes. So um, is that still the case? That is still the case. Yeah. So I told my kids, I said, I, you know, looking back on, I go, how many times have I not gotten something and been really bummed out because I thought that was the thing I had to have happen for me. And then because that thing didn't happen for me, another opportunity opened up and I go, Oh, thank God. This is even better. I had no idea. Same thing with the Baywatch thing. I, I was terrible. You know, I didn't get the job to begin with from an audition and then they call me back in and I had some friends of mine tell me, why would you go back in? They didn't want you the first time. I said, who cares? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you know, just, being too too proud is not a good thing, you know. You just nobody's remembering whether you went. I, my gut tells me they probably didn't even remember they auditioned me. I mean, why would they have called me in? Sure. You know, <laughs> they knew I could swim. That's probably why they called me in. So every time I think of um, you know how we perceive success, I, I try to remind my kids and anybody who will listen is, you know, you can perceive that that one thing is going to be the thing that is going to take you to that level, get you what you want. But, you know, you just, you just don't know. God has bigger plans sometimes than you even have for yourself. And uh, you just don't give up, you know, and don't have too big a chip on your shoulder when you don't get something. Um, just remember that there could be something even bigger comes around the corner and stay, you know, stay humble, uh, stay excited, stay passionate, keep getting up one more time. Sharon, well, some great advice there and some some really cool stories. I appreciate you sharing that with all of us today. And look, you, as I mentioned, you know, when we go to, uh, when I host, you know, the Carolinas or Alabama or Louisiana, Sean Weatherly mm-hmm. is a legend in the Miss USA system. And I know you certainly laid the foundation for what a lot of girls tried to live up to over the past 30 years. So thank you so much for sharing your story and just for being an inspiration to so many young girls. Well, my pleasure. I never thought that would be me, but it's my pleasure. And, and the experiences that I've had have just, you know, was, was beyond my wildest dreams. So I think that's something that for everybody to remember, you, you don't even know what God has planned for you. So keep your well, head up. Well, appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's a real pleasure, Sean. Thanks, Tim. Take care. That is today's episode. Thanks to Sean Weatherly Harris for joining me, and thanks for listening to Life After the Crown. Now, if you like what you just heard, we hope you'll share it with your friends. Just tell them to go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And by the way, if you have any questions you'd like answered on one of our future shows or even a guest that you'd love to hear me interview, just email me at tim at timtialdo.com or Instagram message me at timtialdo. Until next time, remember the words of James 1-2. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. Remember to dream big, set your goals, and start taking action toward them today. See you next week, everybody.